Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Endeavor Video Show and Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Breitkopf, and once again, I'm here with Christy Davin. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Great. So glad to have you on again. Uh, I really feel like we're going to have another really good conversation about this. Uh, so today, we're going to be talking about dealing with disappointing test scores, which is a topic that comes up when students, whether they've achieved an improvement on their test scores or not, but they have not yet achieved their goals. So we're gonna talk a little bit about goal setting, how to deal with a disappointing result, and uh, planning ahead for future better results. So I had Chrissy on the show again this time because not only is she an expert in communication, she works in the uh, supplemental education business with me, we both work together, uh, but she's also a parent of high school age students who are dealing with testing. So wanted to have somebody who might uh, have an opinion on this from a parental perspective. So uh, again, uh, we've talked about this in, a, in the last couple of episodes that we've recorded together over the last few weeks. But um, so you have two sons who are in high school. Yes, I have one who's a senior and one who's a freshman. So let's talk about the one who's a senior because the one who's a freshman um, may not really be doing a lot with testing yet. And if he is, he's doing uh, testing and achieving what we would call uh, pre-scores or starting scores. So we're not really looking at results yet. Mm -hmm. So with your older son, you know, he took testing. Was he happy with his results? Did he, did he feel satisfied? He was happy, I think, simply because, and you and I have talked about this, he, uh, his dream is to go to a music college, Berkeley mm -hmm. or something similar. So SAT, ACT is not his primary um, data point. Right. Uh, he's gifted in his ability to do well enough mm -hmm. right out of the, you know, on, on the first try. So he was one of those one and done hmm. students for this. And that is pretty unusual these days. Uh, what I've read in, from various different uh, data sources is that most high school students in 2018, the average number of times they take the SAT is between two and three, and it's leaning more towards three which is a lot higher than it was back in the day. So students who do the one and done, that's much more rare. Well, it is, and I think, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the expert in this field, but I remember when I was a student, it was, you just gotta break a thousand. Right. You gotta break a thousand. And uh, I, my scores weren't stellar, they were fine, mm -hmm. uh, but I think my, my percentile was right around 90. But the scores that I'm seeing our students come back with now that are around where I was at the time, they're not satisfied and it is not good enough for right. the college that they want to get to. So I don't think you know, the 1,200 or 1,300 score these days is as high a percentile or as impressive to colleges as it used to be. So more practice is necessary, am I? Is that accurate as always with the comments you make and the questions you have it's so packed so dense <laughs> i ask long questions well it's not just that it's, it, 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 it's really they're really thoughtful and so it takes um probably a couple different answers to, to 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 respond to that the first thing is you're right the the and for the just to remind folks at home and i know we've talked about this a lot the scale on the sat is 200 to 800 in each the English and the math sections which means your total score the scale is 400 
1,600. And you can find that on the SAT score report. They'll even put the scale next to your total score when you get your score report back as a student. And mom and dad, you can look at that on the score report. So that means that the median or middle score is 1,000. So that's still true today. If you want to apply to any type of competitive school, from slightly competitive, the state school that doesn't accept everybody, all the way up through the most competitive schools, the Ivy League, Stanford, Georgetown, MIT and Caltech, places like that, cracking a thousand isn't enough, but that's the beginning place. Cracking a thousand gets you into the realm of competitive schools. And the higher you go, the more options you have amongst all schools and the closer you get to being that 95% academically qualified acceptance rate for the Ivy Leagues. When I say that, I don't mean that they accept 95% of students, that 95% of the students who get into an Ivy League school will have scored a very high SAT score, that they're gonna be considered the top flight scorers on these tests. Only about 5% of your Ivy League or Stanford or Georgetown or MIT or Caltech students get scores that are um, not considered really high. So there's that range. So you're right, first you gotta crack a thousand and then maximize for your goals. And the reason why I think you're responding to the score I got in the 12 or 1300s doesn't feel as high as it did back in the day when I took it. And a lot of parents have told me this. So you're not alone. When I talk to the parents of my students, a lot of them tell me, you know, I got a 1200 on the SAT and, and the school that I went to was really good and my, my son is applying to that school and they tell him he needs a 1400. What's going on here? That's actually an artifact of a huge cultural shift that occurred. So if we think about students going to college, from the 1600s when Harvard was founded and then the other major schools were founded up the 16 and 1700s, Yale, Princeton, Rutgers, those types of old schools, through the 1800s when most of the other colleges in the country were founded, whether they were land-grant state schools or private small colleges, only a small percentage of Americans went to college, like under 10%, a tiny percentage of Americans went to college. And they usually ended up being leaders. That's, you know, you think about the presidents, most of the presidents that we had early in our time, you know, John Adams went to Harvard, you know, up through Teddy Roosevelt went to Harvard because that's what you did. You went to college and you were a, a leader. You were one of the elite academic business people social leaders of the country because you're one of the tiny percent of people who went to college. After World War II, there came the first big shift. With the GI Bill and state universities, more and more students started to go to college. And that percentage of Americans who went to college rose. Maybe it became 20% of Americans. Still not a lot, but a larger percentage. And where does the female population fall in there? Almost zero. There were women's colleges, and again, we're talking about someone else's sexism, so please don't yell at me for talking about facts that occurred in the past. Now, I don't necessarily agree with them, but many of these colleges were considered socially as nothing more than finishing schools. And like again- you go, you go so that you can find a husband and then right. you drop out kind of thing? That's pretty much it. And again, you did have some women's <clears throat> colleges where, for example, you know, the Seven Sister Schools in and around um, South Hadley and Amherst in Western Mass, where you had, say, you know, Amherst College and Smith and, and places like Vassar, uh, Wellesley, which were more prestigious, and women did finish, and many of them did go on to 
more prestigious lives. But again, and people are people, and people lead all different sorts of lives. But they were still, women were still a tiny minority, and there were also the historically black universities and colleges, the HBUCs, where again, you know, Washington Carver and, and W.B. Du Bois and, and Martin Luther King would go to these universities and, and try to be leaders in their communities. Um, but again, still a small percentage of those populations. The next big shift after the GI Bill in the late 40s was the integration of uh, colleges and universities in terms of being co-ed in the late 60s and early 70s, as well as integration in terms of the civil rights movement. So all of a sudden, major universities like Harvard and Yale uh, either became co-ed like Princeton or Yale, or like Columbia and Harvard merged with a women's college that was local to the university. And suddenly all these prestigious schools became co-ed, and again, the percentage of students who were applying and getting accepted and attending colleges rose. And then you had probably about 33% from what I've read of American high school students graduating would go to college throughout the 70s and 80s, and then the next big shift occurred. In the early 1990s, President Clinton was elected, and he, as part of his campaign and first term, made a huge push for students to go to college. Now there were community colleges since the late 60s and early 70s, and he pushed for funding for those schools, extra funding for state schools, extra funding for private universities to expand, to grow, to accept more students. So schools that maybe had a population of 1,000 students, over the last 25 years have grown to 2,000 or 3,000. State universities that had 10 or 20,000 back in the mid-80s now have 30 or 40,000 students. So the number of students going to college in terms of applying, getting accepted, and attending has risen, has, pardon me, has risen dramatically, has rose, say, has rose dramatically, has risen dramatically in the last 30 years. So all of a sudden, the reason why it's harder to get into Harvard is that instead of them accepting 1,000 students out of the 10,000 who applied, now they're accepting 2,000 students out of the 40,000 who are applying. So that number is creeping upward in the SAT range. That's what you're seeing. That's why when you feel like the 12 or 1300 range score that I got isn't going to get me to the school that I went to, you're right. If you achieve that same score today... Well, I was joked that I went to Denison University and I couldn't get in today. Mm -hmm. And actually, Denison published an article recently that said they have their, their percentage of acceptance is the most competitive it's ever been. They're mm -hmm. down into the 30... Like 32 percent to 34 percent, mm -hmm. as opposed to the higher numbers where they used to. Yeah. I couldn't get into Denison today. And I know what you mean. The school that I went to, Brandeis University, the acceptance rate is literally half of what it was when I applied in 1990. Mm -hmm. Literally half. So the, the testing scores are just one of the symptoms of that. So Absolutely. everything has become more competitive. Mm -hmm. So your score needs to be higher. So right. Unfortunately, the, base, the baseline, the minimum to breaking a hundred. I mean, breaking a thousand isn't necessarily good enough anymore. No, breaking a thousand will get you into that. Um, local state college that is able to not accept everybody, uh, unlike, say, a community college where you just go in and you pay your money and you can take classes, uh, which is still a good thing. I, I'm a big fan of community colleges. I think they're amazing. They, they really help students who don't know what they want to do or students who do know what they want to do but want to save a lot of money and get the requirements out of the way as freshmen and sophomores and then apply to the more prestigious or competitive school and just do the last two years and get their, their bachelor's degree from the, the more prestigious school. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm a big fan of community colleges, but community colleges are built to just, you walk in, you pay your money, and you go. There's no real acceptance. There's rolling matriculation, rolling admissions. So where does the school that says testing is optional fall on this? I mean, can people who don't get good test scores, can they just say, well, I'll just apply to all schools that don't require them? Or sure. they say they're optional. Yeah. Is optional really optional is, I guess, my question. That's a good point. Is optional really optional? And I'd say it is in the sense that if you say, I refuse to take the SAT and ACT, I know testing isn't my strength, but I've got these amazing grades. I've taken these challenging classes. I've got this whole package for my application. And I don't want to deal with the Harvard's and Yale's of the world because they're too snooty for me. Uh, and I'm going to apply to these colleges like Hampshire College in, in, one of, in one of the schools near Amherst that is a build your own major type of school. It's very um, student driven, that, that school. Not the type of place where I would feel comfortable. So I'm not recommending it. I'm saying if that's a place that would make you feel comfortable, you should look at it. I would be driven insane. I needed much more structure. I went to Brandeis, which while a young university, was modeled after Harvard and Yale. And so it's very structured. Here are your requirements. This is the number of classes you can take. We have distinct majors. I loved it. But if you're a student who wants that more free environment, that Bennington College, that, that Hampshire College experience where you can build your own major and you're not interested in testing, that is a plan. You can just pick testing optional schools or no test allowed schools. Um, I would say that a take. The thing about testing optional schools is they do say it's optional, so students who take tests are providing extra data points. They're providing more information. They're building a more three-dimensional picture of themselves. But you can combat that by submitting other things beyond scores. You can submit extra writing samples. You can submit a portfolio. You could, and when I say a portfolio, I don't necessarily mean a portfolio of your art. What if you're not a visual artist? What if you're a computer programmer? You could submit a portfolio of your coding. Mm -hmm. And, or if you're a roboticist, you were you know, president of the robotics club at your high school, you know, uh, submit a video of your robot in action. And, and fill out your uh, application with more data points to make up for that testing. That's not gonna necessarily work even at MIT because they still want those numbers. MIT is very data driven and they want that video, but they also want your SAT plus two subject tests or an ACT with the essay. They want all those numbers. So it's a balancing act. That's why even for students who are not necessarily interested in testing, who don't feel they're strong at it, I still say, give it a shot, produce some numbers, see if it'll help or not, and then decide. Okay, so they try it. Um, one of the things that I love is that they you don't have to check that little box that says automatically right. report it, you can keep your scores to yourself. Right. Right, so that if you do give it a shot, right. and the score is not what you're hoping it would be, I know that that's sort of where we want to talk right now. Right. I also think it's important to talk about that aspect of um, giving it a shot, what happens if that fails, what happens if it's, you know, if it's not what you want, but it's on the right track, mm -hmm. um, and you know, we're not here to sell test prep classes right, right. now. But, um, there's lots of different things to consider there. Yeah, I mean, what, I think what you're talking about is that even like you can you can look at the scores and then make decisions about submitting them. And you could say, okay, I'm a junior, I got my scores back, they're not what I want, and I have a choice. You can decide to prepare either on your own or with a company or with a private tutor and get to scores you want, 
or just say I'm going to go for the non um, traditional method or, or apply to schools that are scoring optional. So there's all these options. Not checking that box is fine. You can decide later. There's no rush. That's one of the reasons why when we talked about in our previous video about the personal testing calendar about starting earlier mm -hmm. and just giving yourself more options and, and spreading it out. So you're not doing it all at the last second where your options become limited. That's a big thing. Don't limit yourself. Can we throw in here a brief summary, a reminder of what super scoring is? Because I think that sure. comes into play too, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's one thing. Like, if you feel your scores are disappointing, are they disappointing overall or are they just disappointing in one area? Like, for example, let's say a student wants to hit a certain goal because that student, let's call that student Jane. Let's say Jane wants to apply to Brown University. She's read about it. Um, that's the school that interests her. The way they do their academics is interesting and it's not too far from home and it's an Ivy League school and Brown it is. Boom. That's where she wants to go. She has other schools she's applying to but she's shooting for Brown so that's her goal. And she looks up on Naviance or the College Board's website or looks in a Barron's Guide or a, a Fisk's Guide and sees, and again I don't know these numbers by heart, but let's say she sees that the, the, the range, the SAT score range for Brown is 1420 to 1510. I'm probably too low on that. But let's say that's the range, 1420 to 1510. Okay. She takes the test and she gets a 700 in English. All right. But a 550 in math. So that's a 1250. 1250s is a strong score. Back in the day that would get you into any college pretty much. But now it's not good enough for her goals. So what does she do? Well, you got to realize that she scored a 700 on English. That's a pretty good score. So if she focuses on math next time and maxes that score out, even if that English score goes down slightly because she really didn't practice it, colleges like Brown and pretty much any college in the country will super score, as you mentioned, which is take the better English result from one testing and the better math result from a different testing and combine them into a, an Uber score that never really existed. So a 700 from the first testing in English, a 650 in the second testing, from in math, and that's a 1350. Now maybe that isn't your goal yet. You're still disappointed. Hmm, what do I do now? Well, let me talk about that score range. And again, these are not necessarily the real numbers for Brown. I don't know them off the top of my head. There's 4,000 colleges in this country. I only have a limited brain power. <laughs> I'm not gonna memorize 4,000 colleges scores. That's why we have the internet. The internet is my new brain. So let's say their range is 420 to 1510 as I mentioned. And you scored a 1350 super score. Oh no, I'm never gonna get into Brown, you might say to yourself. Well, I say hold on. That range is not the range of all the students who got in. That's the range of the 25th to 75th percentiles of the students they accepted last year. Oh. So what that means is, let's say there's a school that only accepts 100 students. And we're gonna pick 100 because it's an easy number, just like I do with my math instruction. And they go to uh, freshman orientation in August of their freshman year, and the admissions officer lines them up in order by their SAT scores, which would never happen. Once you get into college, students, you can pretty much forget about your scores. They're in the past now, you're already in college, let them go. But let's say that happens. That means that in that one through 100 row, student number 25 will have had that 1420, and student number 75 will have had that 1510. And the students in between would have had scores in between 1420 and 1510. What that means is 
25% of students will have achieved a score higher than 1510 who were accepted, admitted, and attending. And 25% of the students who applied, were accepted, and admitted, and now attending, scored lower than that 1420. So a 1360, it could be a score that is as long as the rest of the application is compelling enough. And that's the key. That's why we focus so much on telling your story. I'm building a narrative, a personal narrative, Mm -hmm. that helps the college admissions officer say, your grades are great, your SAT scores, okay, maybe they didn't hit our 25th percentile, they're still pretty good, but wow, you are interesting. I want to meet you. And maybe they've already met you at a college fair. I've talked about that with Wanda. Maybe they've already met you on your college visit. I have an upcoming episode on that with one of our college counselors. Maybe they've met you at an interview, but they really want to get to know you. You're, you're interesting. Your essay, the story you tell about yourself with your activities and the classes you've taken and your supplemental writing samples and those extra submissions, they want you to be a part of that freshman class. They want you to represent that school because you're gonna make them look good because it's not just about numbers, it's about the person. Every college is not just a bunch of buildings nor is it a bunch of numbers. It's a community. It's people. Think about whether you're an adult watching or listening to this you know, on your daily commute and you're a parent or an educator or you're a high school student. I know there's a few of you out there at least. Think about the school you attended for high school. School spirit, you know, the team, graduation, everybody throwing their cap in the air, signing the yearbook. That's a community. Well, college is a community as well. It's a different type of community. It's not the same, it's not one built from, as one person put it, an accident of geography. You didn't just all grow up in the same town and have similar experiences that way. A college or a university is a self-selecting community. You choose to be a part of that community. You've moved away from home to go to that school, to, to you know, root for that mascot, root for that team, be a part of that, that dorm, that class, that community, those clubs. You've chosen to be a part of that community. And so they want to know that there's going to be people who are not necessarily all going to listen to each other and get along like best buddies, but listen to each other and acknowledge that even in families there's differences of opinion. Even in communities there's difference of opinion and there's debate and discussion. College and university, one of the reasons why I think it's so powerful and and I'm really, I really get frustrated when people say, eh, it's no longer important. College is still amazingly important because you build this community and you learn not just from your classes but from just living on campus, from walking around, from communicating with your fellow students, from having that that exchange of ideas. Being away from home and having to feed yourself and do your own laundry and... Do your own laundry. I mean, (laughs) you know, my mom was an amazing human being but she did not want me busting the stove or busting the washing machine. So she, and I don't know why. It's not like I was like going to touch it and it would fall apart like, you know, like a cartoon. But she wouldn't let me hear those things. So I never cooked for myself until I got to college. The first time I ever did laundry was the second week of freshman year when I ran out of clothes. And I was up till 3 in the morning figuring out how to use that machine, how much laundry detergent, you know. I figured it out because I had to. And, you know, that it, it's kind of this trope about college freshmen, but it was true in my case. That I went into college not knowing a lot of these things, but you know my fellow freshmen helped me out. 
-hmm. And I learned these things. Community. Community, yeah. So back, because I know that I sent you off on a little tangent there about... Um, and backslash rant. Endo. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, we were talking about the, um, the 1360 yeah. might be in the bottom 20, 25th percentile, right. which may not be... It's a good score, but it may not be what Brown says they're looking for. Right. But... Um, but the personal narrative is so much more important there, but it's still back to that testing. Yeah. Um, it was disappointing, but she got around it with this great personal narrative that still gets her into Brown because she is interesting and she seems like such a great fit for that college. Absolutely. But what if, um, so that's one way of getting around it, but what if she didn't get you into 1360? What if everything else is great and you know, what do you say to the student who has, let's say, taken the SAT twice, taken the PSAT, and is still, let's say, at 1100 mm -hmm. or even lower? I mean, I've seen right. some incredibly gifted kids in some of our school partnerships that are very intelligent and doing great in school, but the standardized test format is just um, a challenge, just too much of a challenge, whether it's that, um, that emotional, sort of psychosomatic stumbling block that we talk about so right. often, or if it's something else, maybe it's a learning disability, or maybe it's just multiple choice doesn't compute, whatever it is, how do you address that? Okay, so one thing to think about is something I just mentioned a few minutes ago in, in this episode, which is there are 4,000 plus colleges and universities in the United States. The Ivy League is eight schools. They're very prestigious, mostly because they're very old, they have a lot of famous graduates, and they have huge endowments that allow them to spend a lot of money on cool stuff, like an observatory on campus and things like that. But that doesn't mean you're gonna get the best education there. You have to apply yourself and be the right fit for that school. So there's two things about this. First off, what if that environment, that high pressure, high performing environment isn't right for you? Doesn't matter how good a school Brown is, you might not stick. I don't care how good a school Harvard is. If that's not the right environment for you, then it doesn't matter how good the classes are. It doesn't matter how good the professors are. It doesn't matter how wealthy the school is and how many cool toys it has on campus. If the pressure of Harvard being Harvard or Brown being Brown is not right for you, then that's not the right place for you. And the SAT and the ACT, these high pressure tests, can give you an inkling of that. If you're a really smart person, a really high achieving student, you're in honors and AP classes, and you can barely crack a thousand on the SAT, it's not because you're dumb. You are clearly not. You are a smart person. You got good grades in school, and, 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 and it's something else is happening on that test. It's the, the, the pressure of that test is defeating you. And that's okay. It's okay to fail. It's okay to make mistakes. Failure is the best teacher. Mistakes are the best teachers. And we're just, we, we live in, an in a society where failure is treated as, or mistakes are treated as a bad thing. In my opinion, they're the best thing because you learn from them. So maybe what you learn is, is that a high pressure environment isn't the best place for me. The other thing to realize is you can get a great education pretty much anywhere. For example, and I brought this story up on previous episodes of the podcast. I have an acquaintance who I've met through my love of poetry. Yes, I love poetry. And so there's a woman who I know um, who and I've, I've attended her poetry group. Uh, I've seen her perform. Uh, she's seen me perform poetry live. 
Her name is Dr. January O'Neill, and she is a professor at Salem State University. And she runs the uh, Salem Poet the Mass Poetry Festival. The Massachusetts Poetry Festival is in Salem every year, so it's not the Salem Poetry Festival. And so she's a world-renowned, world-respected expert in poetry and poet. She doesn't teach at Harvard. She doesn't teach at USC or, or Columbia. She teaches at Salem State. She, I don't know why she does this, although having had conversations with her, I suspect it's because this is where she lives. That area of the world is where she lives. That's where her kids go to school. And she's comfortable there. And so you get a Harvard-level professor at Salem State University, a state school in Massachusetts. There are teachers, professors like that, all across the country. I knew professors like that at state schools throughout California when I lived there, in New Jersey and New York where I lived there. So you can, you, you, you can experience an amazing education at a school that isn't famous or prestigious or you know, really hard to get into if you apply yourself, if you seek out those challenging classes, if you push yourself to, to, in, the, in your areas to achieve as much as possible in the, the area of your, of your interest and expertise. So maybe if you're only able to, to rip an 1150 out of the SAT, no matter how hard you bang your head against it, because you just that testing pressure isn't the right, isn't right for you, it isn't the right experience for you, then maybe Brown isn't the right environment for you. Maybe you should explore other types of schools. Maybe you should explore, explore a small liberal arts college. Maybe you should explore uh, other types of schools in other parts of the country. You know. Harvard's a great school. Yale, Princeton, they're all great schools. The Ivy Leagues, they're great. But they're not right for everybody. And even more importantly, they only accept about 2,000 students each year each. Out of 40,000 applicants, a lot of these schools. So you went to Denison, I went to Brandeis. The, that's not Harvard, that's not Yale, and yet we still received amazing educations. Mm -hmm. I'm very proud of the school I went to. It's prestigious enough for me. It's a good school, you know? I, I'm happy. It hasn't hurt me in getting a job. I received a great education. I met a, a community of amazing people. So I realize that mom and dad may say, you know, you're an AP student in four APs your junior year or your senior year. You should go to Harvard because that'll make us look amazing. I don't know. That brings me to my next question, which is where the parents fall and the parents, I don't want to say job, but the parents' role in this process. and. Your point is a good one. So many families, um, and parents don't take this personally, it may not be you, but there are some people out there who do live vicariously through their kids. Um, maybe it's because they have an alma mater mm -hmm. and they desperately want their kid to carry on the tradition. Yeah. Or it's simply, I want bragging rights. I want my kid um, to go to a school that I can say, well, he's going to so-and-so, and people know what that means and where it is, and they can be like, oh, well, that's really, that's really impressive. Um, but the testing scores as well, I think the parents play a key role in providing context mm -hmm. for that score. And I think yeah. your point about how Harvard isn't good for everybody is something that we talk about a lot at Endeavor, that this whole process of the personal narrative, being academically qualified sort of narrows down your choices, but the personal narrative helps you and the school choose each other yeah. and see if you're a good fit. And so the parents, and I don't want to get off on a huge tangent about um, alma maters and 
parent support and all of that, right. but it, it applies, I think, to the testing mm -hmm. and how parents can support and encourage and motivate their kid without laying on another layer of pressure. Yeah, I agree completely. I think the big thing for parents, and I, and I say this not just as an educator who's worked with parents a lot over the last 15, 20 years, but also as a parent myself who's, my children are too young for testing yet. They're in, in elementary school still. Uh, but they're gonna get there. And my thing is, as a parent, uh, you want to provide opportunities and then step out of the way. Uh, I want my student to achieve, so I'm gonna provide an SAT class. I'm gonna, you know, be there for them and advocate for them with the guidance counselors and give them opportunities and then let them do their thing. I'm going to encourage them and guide them and maybe push them a little, but step out of the way. And that same thing applies to colleges. I have been the same way where I've met so many students who tell me, oh, I'm applying to this school because mom wants me to. I'm applying, I've had so many students actually in the last couple of months say, I'm applying to Boston University, specifically Boston University, interestingly, because my dad went there, because my mom went there and they want me to go there. Great, Boston University is a great school. If you go there, you'll probably receive an amazing education provided you apply yourself. But when the student tells me I'm applying there, but I don't wanna go there. I don't wanna be in Boston because I grow, I grew up in Boston, I wanna go you know, out west. I wanna go to Florida, I wanna go to New York City, I wanna go to California. My response is, you gotta, you, you gotta be happy. Because here's the thing, parents, you're not going back to college. The student is going to college. That student has to live on that campus and be in that environment and experience that for four years. That's gonna be their home for four years. If they're unhappy, they're not gonna have the college success that you would like for them. Do you want them to be as successful as possible or go someplace that, that you want them to go? Because that is sometimes the choice. You and I both experienced this. I know you're talking from experience. Your parents all went to, it was Bowdoin? Bowdoin was my dad's side alma mater. My brother, my dad, his uh, cousins and father and uncle, I mean, you name it, everybody went to Bowdoin. For I, me, it was Rutgers. Rutgers, My right. dad, my uncle, my mom, my grandfather, you know, everybody. Well, my mom was kind of competitive and she thinks she wanted bragging rights and the way she positioned it for me, she wanted me to go to Dartmouth because her daddy, who she idolized went to Dartmouth, and mm -hmm. so did her um, brother, my uncle Mike. And um, my brother didn't get in, so and he went to Bowdoin. So my mother said, "Well, but you could get into Dartmouth because Peter didn't get into Dartmouth." And so there was that her way of turning it around. Um, I think she wanted somebody to go to Dartmouth, and I felt terrible because um, somewhere deep down I knew that I just wasn't Dartmouth material. I was never going to get into Dartmouth. I was a smart student, but not an applied student. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't have, um, yeah. I, I didn't have the resume yeah. for Dartmouth. I know what you mean. Like, I didn't have the resume for both. Well, my, my freshman year in high school was a disaster. Um, there was a lot of things going on there. The transition from middle school to high school, uh, puberty, let's be honest. Uh, my dad <laughs> had a heart attack at the oh. beginning of my freshman year. I was oh. in the hospital for three months. Yikes. And so I just spent a lot of time visiting him in the hospital. And so my freshman year was an utter disaster and I, my grades crashed and burned. I had never gotten, I'd gotten one B in my life before then. It was all A's up through eighth grade. Mm -hmm. And I had a C minus average at the end of my freshman year. Um, like it for was, me, sophomore year, 2.76 sophomore yeah. year. And so I, I did better my sophomore year, but I still had like a rough time in math and uh, science. And then my junior and senior year, I pretty much got all A's um, as I pulled it together and I learned some study skills. 
Uh, but my GPA coming out of high school then was not as strong as it could have been because of that disastrous freshman year. And so that really limited my options. So places like Harvard and Yale weren't an option for me. So my parents wanted me to go to Rutgers and I could have gone to Rutgers, but I just, I wanted to go somewhere else. I wanted to go away to school. And so I ended up applying to schools that were not necessarily the most world famous. I applied to Brandeis where I went. I applied to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. It's an amazing school. Not everybody's heard of that school, although many people have. I applied to Hamilton College in upstate New York, which I that got was the one you really wanted to go to. Oh, that was my top choice. I got waitlisted. Brandeis was actually my I second choice. Oh, it's amazing. I love that school. I applied to um, Middlebury. Did you apply to Middlebury? No, I never applied to I applied to actually Washington and Lee. Uh, even though I was scared to death of it, it was shares a campus with Virginia Military Institute uh, and all the little Confederate soldiers walking around in their uniforms because they were in gray So at the time. So it was scary to me. Now, if you go to either VMI or Washington Lee, please don't think of that as an insult. That was just my you know, 11th grader perception of those areas. And it, you're coming from New Jersey and you know, it was just, oh my God, I'm in the South. So it was a little like um, <laughs> stressful. And I applied to uh, Penn State and you know, a bunch of other schools. Um, and so it's not all, it's like there's great schools. There's find a school that fits your personality. That's more important. We've talked about college fit. We're gonna to continue to talk about college fit in a bunch of these episodes. We're gonna come back to that. So, you know, a score that may be disappointing for your application to Brown or Dartmouth or Bowdoin might be right, boom, in the middle of the zone for, you know, Carnegie Mellon or U Pittsburgh Denison. or Denison or Wesleyan or you know Oberlin or Carlton College in Minnesota or you know Pepperdine in Malibu or you know great schools all around the country. So well, and that's the thing. I mean, and um, you know my story. I applied to all these colleges that my mother wanted me to apply to because mm -hmm. she wanted me to go to a school with bragging rights. Bowdoin, Bates, Colby, Hamilton, Middlebury, Skidmore, UVM, all these great schools in Dartmouth. Um, I didn't get into any of them. I got waitlisted at Skidmore. Um, my guidance counselor said, you know what, this is a really nice list. It's a very pretty list. Let's just add just a couple more. Yeah. And I'd never heard of them, and I didn't visit them, and I didn't do any research. And those two, Denison and Gettysburg, were the only two I got into. Mm -hmm. and Gettysburg's a really hard school to get into. It's a good school. Um, and well, in Denison, you know, my again, my SAT scores were fine. They were 90th percentile at the time. Um, and my grades were fine. My resume wasn't really anything impressive. So I went eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and ended up at Denison out of sheer luck. Mm -hmm. uh, again, didn't know anything about it. I made one of the colossal cardinal sins, which is I accepted without even visiting. I just... You know what's funny? Brandeis is the only school that I applied to that I didn't visit. And you loved it. I loved it. And Denison was life-changing for me, mostly because I had to drive to Ohio. It taught me this incredible sense of independence. I mm -hmm. paved my own way. I was not going to be um, Pete Tallheimer's little sister. I might want to edit out the name. I don't know. Sorry, Peter. Um, I, uh, I was not anybody's little sister. I was not a legacy. I was not anything. I was just Christy. And I got to, um, I mean, I did go there. Denison, it turns out, was my guidance counselor's favorite safety school. So I went to um, Denison freshman year with three other people that I graduated with mm -hmm. because they just loved Denison. Right. And it, there's a reason for that. It's a great school in the middle of nowhere, um, relatively unknown at the time. Yeah. And I got an amazing education and I had an amazing <laughs> experience and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And so there was a reason yeah. why I didn't get into Bowdoin and why I didn't get into Dartmouth. And um, it was, it ended up a great fit for me. Right. And of course I didn't do, do that whole 
it was lucky. Yeah. It, it, and it, it's going to not happen. Not everybody's going to be that lucky with a safety. But um, I think that a, the, the lesson for parents and for students is that there's, if you can't get into Brown um, because of SAT scores or whatever, there's probably a great fit out there that you can get into. Mm -hmm. And worst case scenario, you go to one of those other places for a couple of years, prove yourself, and then you can transfer in, That's can't true. you? Yeah, transferring is, is a fraught experience. Uh, so I think carefully about it, but it is possible. In fact, the funny thing is, even because the pool of transfer applicants is so much smaller, most prestigious schools actually have a slightly higher acceptance rate for transfers. But again, I wouldn't say, oh, I'm going to go to, you know, Rinky Dink State University and then after two years of getting straight A's apply to Harvard, I'm going to get in. It doesn't work that way, but it is a, it is a possibility. Well, some schools don't take them because of that. They, like somebody like Harvard, they don't want you to go to community college, transfer in and get a degree from Harvard. Well, actually, you know, it depends. I mean, the, the, the rags to riches story of somebody going to community college and transferring to Harvard does exist. Okay. And, they, and when that happens, they will tout you as one of their like amazing success stories. But again, that's pretty rare, you know? All right. So don't count on it, but it can happen. It has happened, but don't count on it. Um, I think that pretty much covers uh, how to deal with disappointing college score, uh, pardon me, disappointing SAT scores, which is a disappointing SAT score for an application to the Ivy Leagues might be a perfect score for a school that's a better fit for you, that will give you an amazing experience and introduce you to a community that you might not have experienced otherwise. And if the score is the only thing that's disappointing, then you can out you can overcome it mm -hmm. with that great personal narrative. Absolutely, narrative is very important and matters a lot to colleges because we are people, not numbers. So, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Christy, for being My with you again today. Uh, I just love our conversations, and I hope you do too at home, whether you're listening or watching. Uh, as always, please remember to subscribe so you can make sure to get these episodes every time they post. We're Right now we're on a schedule of two episodes a week over the summer. We'll probably be down to one episode a week, but then again in the fall, as the school year starts, we'll go back to two episodes a week. Please remember to comment on our Twitter feed, at EndeavorPod, or on iTunes, and you can always share our episodes. The internet is a wonderful thing. And as always, let's keep learning. <laughs>